You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Hi, welcome to Culturally Determined on Blogging Heads TV. I'm your host, Ari Cohen-Wade, and my guest today is Robbie Soave. Uh, Robbie, could you introduce yourself? Sure. Uh, hello, everybody. I'm an associate editor at Reason Magazine and the author of the new book, Panic Attack, Young Radicals in the Age of Trump, uh, about illiberal uh, tides in activism on college campuses and elsewhere. Right. So, uh, very uh, striking cover. Um, and <laughs> this, this, it's, it's, this is just the advanced reader's copy, so you the, hard, the hardback goes on sale today, is that right? Um, yes, that's right. Today we're recording this day. on Tuesday, but this will be probably take a couple days to get posted. Uh, so it, it'll be available at your local, uh, you know, uh, book selling establishment or wherever you buy books. So, um, so thanks for coming on. Uh, I enjoyed reading the book. Uh, there were parts I agreed with. There were parts I disagreed with. So we could <laughs> hopefully have a fruitful discussion. Uh, but I guess the first question is the obvious one. Like, why, why was this the book you wanted to write? Well, so I had been writing about um, happenings on college campuses for uh, quite a few years now, uh, maybe five years at Reason. Um, I think it was when kind of a couple big uh, or national headline generating incidents happened at once um, in 2000, I want to say 15. Um, the, for the University of Missouri uh, had a, a lot of protests on campus uh, that resulted in uh, a top leadership leaving. And then there was that uh, that infamous sort of protest in a public place where a student journalist was trying to document what was happening. And a professor of journalism, actually, or a professor of communications, uh, Melissa Click, uh, sort of called for this person to be assaulted. And this became this very viral incident that that just infuriated people for, I mean, for good reason. I, I mean, this was a this was a legitimately outrageous thing that she did. Yeah, so many uh, she, things have happened since then. I completely forgot. Right, about it was that, a long yeah. time ago. And then right <laughs> after that was uh, the infamous at Yale, um, the the uh, Nicholas Christakis, the dean there, uh, be, being surrounded by students. Uh, a group of students who were very upset, actually, at Christakis's wife, who taught at Yale, that she had kind of rejected the college's um, very infantilizing Halloween costume guidance and said that the kids should kind of wear whatever they want. And the students yelled at Christakis that, you know, we reject this. It, in fact, it is your job as our as our father figure um, to provide a, a safe, uh, an emotional safe space on campus for us, not an intellectual space. And that was kind of the genesis of a lot of, I think, discussion of safe spaces and trigger warnings and all those kinds of fun social justice uh, terminology that has entered the broader culture. Um, so someone came to me, an agent came to me and said, you should really write a book on this subject. I've been reading your, uh, your writing on this for a while, and uh, yet it's a subject that is near and dear to my heart as a libertarian. I agree with some of the things, at least, that the, the progressives that, uh, that the left wants or have, have historically agreed with them. And I, I see a current, at least, in their activism that is infringing on uh, some principles that I, I think I used to share with them, specifically free speech and due process. Mm -hmm. So um, I enjoyed, yeah, I enjoyed reading the book, and it is not like the kind of book that um, – you know, a personality on Fox News would write about uh, these precious little snowflakes who need their safe spaces with their coloring books and their 12 genders. And, uh, you know, it's not you're not mocking these people. And you I what I one of the things I appreciate about the book was you give them 
their fair say. You quote you quote a number of young activists at length, and they uh, you know say various things, which some of which you agree with, some of which you disagree with, some of, some of which you just leave it up to the reader to decide whether this makes sense or not. Um, so it's not just let's find the strange thing that happened somewhere and make fun of it. You know, the kind of thing that might appear on like a Fox, you know, a three minute segment on Fox News. Um, so I like that. Um, so actually let's, so I, here's my like meta critique and then you can tell me where, why I'm wrong. Uh, and actually the Christakis incident is a good example. So, um, so I, I went to Yale and I graduated in 2005. So when I saw that video, I've been in the Silliman court, you know, I was in the Silliman courtyard many times. Uh, when I saw that video, I was really shocked. I was like, you know, the, I can't imagine myself or the, uh, my friends from college, uh, doing something like that to the, uh, residential college, uh, master, as I think what they used to be called when I was there, they changed it to head of house or something like that because master has these unfortunate historical resonances in America. It's essentially like the, um, you know, if you're having an issue with your roommate or something, you go like talk to the master and see if you can hash it out and they're kind of in charge of the social life of these like residential colleges, which are just like fancy dorms at Yale. So I, you know, so I, I sent that video clip to friends who I went to college with being like, have you seen this? This is crazy. Um, and then thinking about it more and, you know, four or five years later, like what, what was the, so the, the students seemed to be acting differently than I would have acted. My friends would have acted at the same time. What was the real difference here? It was the fact that someone had a smartphone and they could capture this incident that wasn't a violent incident, but like a charged incident where students are yelling at adults and uh, in kind of a wacky way. <laughs> and, you know, if this had happened when I was a student, it would not have even gotten written up in the Yale Daily News. Like two people yelling at each other on a college campus is not news, even when it's a student yelling at a professor. So the incident would have been forgotten and no one would have cared. Um, so the, cha- the change is the technology. It's the smartphone and YouTube enabling the, like these discrete incidents that are happening to go viral and for people around the world to see this, you know, 20 year old girl yelling at a 50 year old professor. And so, yeah, that, so part of my critique is like, has something changed just not that's beyond the technological, technological change such that if there's something weird that, ha- like, if there's something weird that happens and some, someone <laughs> takes their phone out, which anyone can do at any time and uploads it to YouTube, everyone can see it. Or if it gets written up in the local, or written up in the, in the campus paper, the campus papers are online now, so anyone can find that article. The article can go, can go viral. I'm sure there were plenty of strange things that happened on college campuses in the pre-internet era that were lost to posterity. Um, so has, like, has something changed, uh, in the, like, minds and ideologies of the students? Or is it just that they've always been wacky? You know, these, they're 18, 19, 20 years old. A handful of them are gonna be wacky. Just like a handful of any group are gonna be wacky. And, you know, they don't have jobs and, like, their food is provided for them, so they have lots of free time to do wacky things. Um, and the, these are the particular wacky things they're, they're doing right now. And because of the Internet and smartphones and YouTube, we can all see and critique their their strange goings on when really it's just, like, a handful of people around the country. Sure. sure. Um, so, I mean, I, I sort of – I mean, I agree with that point. To a substantial degree, I, and I, I do mention this book. It, it, I, I mentioned this in the book. Um, I mean, yes, we pay much more attention to what is going. I mean, we being nationally, uh, the, the national news media pays far more attention 
uh, to what's going on on college campuses now than it did even 10 years ago. Um, there are now many uh, sites uh, affiliated uh, to varying degrees with, with sort of a conservative ideology, um, like the College Fix, Campus Reform, Red Alert Politics. Uh, there are others. Uh, I, I mean, Fox has, you know, what's going on in campus segments uh, and many of its shows. Um, there is a level of attention to what is happening on campuses that was absolutely not there uh, 10 years ago. Um, and, and yes, also, it is easier to record for posterity everything that happens on a campus. Uh, I attended the University of Michigan from 2006 to 2010. Uh, I think when I was there, if someone had written, like a student had written a terrible op-ed or like a like an e- social justice warrior is I mean, I don't even like to use that term, but I, you know, the kind of person I'm characterizing, if they had written something like that for the campus paper, like a very easily mocked thing, well, it might be mocked on campus, but that would that'd be it like a day later. Now, you know, you could have a segment on a cable news channel about that op-ed. You also have in class um, the recording of things that professors say that are like perceived as un-American or something um, that sometimes are wacky things. But I but I'm strong. I'm staunchly for faculty rights. And I I think faculty should get to set their classrooms. And I don't really like those things being recorded, let alone reported on. Um, So so for all those reasons, I do agree that there is a level of attention to these problems that might be making them seem uh, like they're occurring more frequently when really we're just paying more attention to them. That's actually something I talk about in my in my really mostly unrelated to this book, but my reporting on hate crimes, which is another beat I kind of uh, work on. I, I testified before the the, sub, the House Subcommittee on Hate Crimes, and I said in my remarks, you know, the more we like aggressively track these things and we're very sensitive to them occurring and more municipalities are submitting data, it's going to look like hate crimes are increasing when really we're just like paying a lot more attention to it. So, and a similar, so I, a similar thing could happen and has happened with recordings of like uh, Eric Garner, the, the, the guy's name who was uh, suffocated, the guy selling blue cigarettes yeah, in yeah, New York. Yeah. You know, if that wasn't recorded, then it wouldn't be a national news story because the cops would have told their version of the story and that would have been more or less it. Um, yeah. So, and then any, yeah. yeah, and anything that happens in some little town like Ferguson, Missouri can go, you know, viral across yes. the country now. So we, so we always have to be careful about, uh, so we can't really quantify the phenomenon I'm talking about in my book. Uh, it's very, and it's especially, we can't quantify it in, in like with respect to some other period in time. So I try not to, I'm sure I have occasionally slipped up when talking about it, but I try not to describe the phenomenon I'm discussing as a crisis uh, because I don't think there is enough evidence or good evidence to suggest that um, that, 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 that it's impossible or it's, it's so vastly more difficult to have an uncomfortable conversation on a college campus than it was 10 or 20 or 50 years ago. Um, so I don't use the language of a crisis. Um, that said, I don't know about the Yale thing. I think that, you know, this group, uh, I mean, obviously if no one knew it happened, you're right, it wouldn't have been reported on, but I could see that what happened to Christakis becoming a national story. That one is a little bit more, I mean, with the students like yelling at him for hours and using like sort of more specific, crazy language about what the role of the administration is. I mean, decades ago, students did not view so I think this is a change, or at least the activist sort of radical engaged students 
you know, based on my research, my reading of what was going on in campuses many year, uh, decades ago, and, what, and again, what the activists were trying to do, which was throw off like the very in loco parentis norms of the administrators. I do think there has been a, a, a cultural change, subtle or maybe not even so subtle, about, about what the, the, in, the politically engaged students on campus want. I think they are more likely now to want sort of protection from very broadly defined emotional harms, uh, viewing the administration as their parental figures. Um, I mean, they're very explicit in the language they use, that the, the things they don't like or people saying things they don't like, it's not just that they disagree with it or they think it's bad, but that it impacts their safety. Um, they, have, they have internalized the language of sort of harassment law um, as it relates to the campus. I mean, that's something the student activists would have had no idea about. I, to some degree, wouldn't have even existed or applied to them if we're going further enough back. Um, so, yeah, so, yes, the language and the way they talk about these things and to some degree the things they want, um, I think, are very different, um, particularly at these uh, kind of very elite college campuses uh, where we've seen, um, you know, some comparatively, I would say, privileged students or, or, or in a good lot in life students, um, you know, agitating for kind of trivial uh, things or, or easily criticized things. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think just with the Christakis thing, I think if there were no video, it wouldn't be a story. The the emotion from the students all surrounding, you know, like 20 people surrounding this one guy and all like pointing their fingers and yelling at him is, I think, the hook to that story. So if they had, if smartphones didn't exist, but they, like the Yale Daily News heard this was happening and sent a reporter over to capture what they could and then wrote it up the next day, I don't, like, I don't think this is a, <laughs> this is a viral story, um, you know, students yell at. Professor, yellow professor. But well, I, I agree with you that there does seem to be a change of this, like, in loco parentis, like, protect us kind of thing. And, um, I, 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 I suppose that's like a, you know, you talk about it, you know, if we're going to blame someone here, we're like the parents who, uh, delivered helicopter parenting, as it's called, and other sorts of things. And like, parenting has gotten a lot more intensive, uh, as time has gone on and, you know, kids aren't allowed to just run around in the backyard or in the neighborhood or whatever. So, and then like the other kind of thing that I've, my long personal pet theory is like, you know, yeah, these kids are acting like they all already have PTSD when they arrive on campus or these kids we're talking about who are speaking this language and are protesting this way. And like, you know, the, as I understand it, the, like the idea of a trigger warning started uh, in like online forums for yes. uh, like rape victims um, or, or victims of other kinds of trauma. And like, yeah, if you were, you know, you can say like, oh, I'm going to skip this thread right now because I don't want to read about a, a description of someone's rape right now. Uh, so it like makes sense in that, <laughs> in, in that uh, area of life. And it like blew up, but you know, these, you know, this, just this whole idea that like they need to be protected. They're very psychologically fragile. Like where is this coming from? I mean, like, could it come from the fact that, like, it's become really, really hard and crazy to get into these elite colleges, like, significantly harder than when I got into an elite college uh, 20 odd years ago? Like, maybe something about this process through which the kids are sorted into the super elite and the, like, slightly less elite um, makes, make, it is almost like some sort of emotional trauma. And they, uh, they get there and they're like, you know, they're like battered and bruised. <laughs> and then they have to, in addition to taking all these classes, they have all, all the other, um, you know, they're like introduced to like some of these intersectionality, uh, social justice ideas. So it's like, I mean, 
you know, you think of other possible explanations like, you know, 9-11 freaked everyone out. Uh, the the uh, Great Recession freaked everyone out. What, like, do you have a theory for why why the students are acting like this? Um, oh, so a couple things. So your theory is interesting to me. Um, however, they don't, by and large, actually students, so super by and large, not even just the most radical and sort of emotionally fragile ones, I think do not exactly behave uh, when they get to campus as if, oh my God, this was so hard and I am just so lucky and so thankful to be here that I'm going to get this great education and I'm going to make the most of it and I'm going to study and I'm going to hit the library and I'm going to, you know, make sure I'm, I'm getting a good job. I mean, let's be real, right? I mean, the, um, uh, now that's true and maybe at the community college level at, 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 less, uh, less, at less rigorous, less expensive institutions that are easier to get into. But I mean... I mean, we can talk about like this college admission scandal stuff, right? I mean, they worked hard to get in for a party experience, um, for this social experience of college. That's the thing that is, is driving. I maybe, maybe not for them, but for, for a, for a large number of students, I suspect is what drives them to get into a better college is the social experience. Uh Um, I just don't, I don't know that that necessarily computes with a, like I am so, so rocked from the experience of going there. Um, I think, uh, and I talk about this in my book, I think the incident um, actually rather than nine 11, that if you want to like point to one sort of incident, how did this thing that happened like, change the uh, the direction of the education of young people more so than 9-11 i think is columbine Mm -hmm. um which which um had a massive effect on how schools were uh were run i mean it had an effect and also happened at a time where these changes were already taking place uh but that was the drive to make schools k through 12 uh, much more, much more safe. This, this, there was a perception, a, a broadly shared social perception that schools were very dangerous. Children there were sitting ducks. A perception that is like flat out wrong. Gun violence in schools has always been incredibly rare. There are, I, I mean, these are stories obviously that, 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 that attract our attention and they're so horrifying and we spend a lot of time wondering how this could have happened and what could have we have done to stop them. The, the very the frustrating thing about trying to design public policy to stop things that are like extremely rare is that it's difficult, which is the case not for shootings in general, but for shootings specifically at schools is certainly the case. Mm-hmm. Um, but if, if you know if you were to go back to 1970, you would not find a single police officer in a school anywhere in America. Um, now there's uh, a police officer in I, I think like 40 or 50 percent of public high schools. Um, the effect of that is that minor disciplinary matters that would in previous that in our like parents generation would have been handled by parents, teachers, counselors are handled by police officers. They become criminal matters more easily. Um, schools have more of a TSA style security theater going on. Again, one that much like the TSA is completely pointless. Um, but the, the reorienting of school around the concept of of sort of daycare, uh, I mean, daycare like slash jail, um, like a, like a safety environment rather than an uncomfortable learning environment. Um, I, now again, I can, I, I can't point to any, I can't draw any like absolute like, you know, causation here, but it would seem to me this, 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 this different 
this much different um, educational upbringing of millennial, older millennial, rather younger millennials and Gen Z. Um, I mean, it, it was very different than, you know, probably even what I, I was born in 1988. I was in, I think, fifth grade when Columbine happened. Probably these changes were were getting much, much more dramatic right after I kind of came through school. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have to think they've had an effect, um, at least. And then if you just have some, uh, again, because the, stu- the activist students demanding the safety, uh, t- demanding the safety, demanding safety, talking about uh, uh, mental health in this way, are still a, a, a tiny minority of the students. So if it's just some of them who came through this environment internalizing some kind of ridiculous notion of safety, having a, a very large impact uh, on the culture of campus relative to their size, that seems not absurd to me. Yeah, yeah. I, I think – I don't know if Columbine is the is the single hinge point, but it's definitely one of them. I was, I think, a sophomore in high school when that happened, and um, – you know, we had, I remember very distinctly having a like class discussion, like, could it happen here? You know, that, that kind of thing. And which was probably a good thing to have at the time, but also got everyone worried that, well, if it could happen here, then maybe it will tomorrow. And well, and also there was all this like completely wrong, uh, sort of, uh, discussion in the media that it was bullying is what caused it. If we bully people, they're going to snap and they're going to kill us. So we have to like, Take, you know, have all these these uh, sort of dramatic and maybe overbearing efforts to stamp out bullying because we bully the kids too hard, they're going to turn into mass shooters, uh, which is just absolutely not the case for Columbine. The, the 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 of the two kids who organized it, the one of them was like garden variety sociopath. I mean, they were bullies to other kids. I mean, for many teens, right? It's more complicated than these are the bullies and these are the bullied. Yes. Yes. Actually, most kids are are bullied at some point and then capable also of great cruelty to others. Yeah. Um, but, but these, you know, the, 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 the kids who organized it, one of the, 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 the ringleader, um, uh, was, was, yeah, Harris, uh, Harris, yes, was very much, um, you know, a like delusions of grandeur sociopath. It was not that he was like pushed past some breaking point. It's just like not true at all. And that, and that myth has been debunked. Now, but in you could if you go back and read like the Washington Post news stories from around then, there was some like, oh, they have the you know the trophies of the athletes are in the front hall, and and that's bad because we like we're glorifying the athlete too much or so like some very just punditocracy that has not held up well. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess the other possible change in this, um, I graduated high school in two thousand one, so I barely miss this was like the, the no child left behind and the turn towards. Um, like annual evaluations by standardized testing mm-hmm. and that regime, which has been, which is, which is kind of reversed somewhat under Obama, but I think still mostly continues. And yeah, that just seems to change the character of, of school and the test is the important thing. And you're working up to this one giant event and like, yeah, that would increase anxiety in anyone. If they're saying like, yeah, this is the super important test and you get one chance and blah, blah. Um, okay. So it multi multiple factors perhaps. Okay. Let's, let's talk about intersectionality. Um, and I'll say that when I, when I graduated in 2005, I had never heard this word before at the liberal Yale university. And I was an English major. Um, and there are multiple other things I, I, you know, I, we didn't talk about postmodern, uh, you know, postmodern criticism at all when I was an English major at Yale for whatever reason. Um, but yeah, it's really intersectionality. I never heard the term probably before 2014 or 15 seeing it online. And, uh, well, 
it, it seemed to me reading the book that like internet intersectionality was the overarching kind of villain or cause of a lot of this stuff in, in your eyes. So is that true? And can you define intersectionality for anyone who doesn't yes. know what it is at this point? Uh, yeah, I think that's fair. And also I, so I graduated in 2010. Like I said, I don't think I had heard that word either. Um, I definitely heard uh, postmodernism and that had been discussed in my classes. Intersectionality, no. So intersectionality is a concept that comes from sociology. It was coined in the late 1980s by a sociologist named Kimberly Crenshaw. She needed a way to describe uh, the fact that you can be oppressed you can be marginalized for different reasons. Uh, black people have historically suffered from the, the source of oppression of racism, uh, women from gender, uh, uh, gay people because of their LGBT, uh, LGBT status and so on. Um, but so a, a gay woman has two sources of oppression working against her. Uh, a gay black woman would have three. Uh, so these are different sources of oppression, um, but they are related and they can stack. Um, and, uh, so, uh, so that theory, that theory is actually fairly basic, right? It, it's just obviously correct in some sense. It's yeah, not it's, a, the, the initial broad, thing, like that's true. Yeah. The initial thing seems very intuitive. Like, yes, a black woman faces yes. issues different yeah. from either a white woman or a black man, like because right. of the in- intersection. And of- I don't. Yeah. yeah and I, I don't, I don't even think anyone, uh, on the, I, I, I don't describe myself as a person on the right, but even I've actually Vox had a write up of the concept of intersectionality where they interview, where they talked to, I think both David French and Ben Shapiro, I think, or at least one of the two who, who said, who also said, yes, the theory is, is correct. So the criticism is really of the application of the theory, which is that Crenshaw, uh, you know, she was just talking about race and gender and would not have envisioned. I don't necessarily think the addition of all these other categories of marginalization that are popular with student activists, um, you know, gender, gender identity, gender expression, uh, 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 transgender status, um, uh, uh, possibly religious status. If your religious status is of a group uh, like Islam, that the left is favorably inclined to view your you as a potential victim um, you know, when, these are these are things that uh, that university campuses often have bias reporting systems that allow you to uh, to specifically document any slight you have encountered for one of these reasons, and and they they can go on so far as like as disability status, or I've even seen sizeism, um, which would be being overweight or not. And I don't mean to to sort of belittle any of these categories. Obviously, there is cruelty leveled at people for all of these reasons and more. Um, my sort of, uh, a, I guess, criticism, though, uh, is that I, I see a left um, who seem or or a, a, a activist left uh, saying that everything must be intersectional. If your activism is not intersectional, it's no good to us. Uh, the issue with that being is that only kind of this tiny fringe group of progressive leftists would agree that all of these things are very important things that we must work against. So if you're trying to bring like a broader public engaged in your issues, you're going to run into trouble when you're suddenly saying, okay, but we, we categorically reject anyone who is going to march in our, in our pride day uh, parade with like a, a flag of the state of Israel. Um, it's, it's going to make like single issue advocacy with, with other ideological groups, basically impossible. 
Um, it produces uh, a good amount of infighting because then there are also kind of some other implications of the theory that, for instance, only the people who suffer under those categories of oppression have the authority to like weigh in on what we should be doing for them. But simultaneously, it's not their job to ed- educate us, and we can't put them on a platform where they are supposed to speak because they are the marginalized, and we the marginalized are marginalized. The non-marginalized should be, you know, should be stepping up like at rallies where the police could kill you because they're not going to kill the, the 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 white male; they're going to kill the oppressed uh, 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 black people. Uh, so there's just a, kind of all these contradictions of it again. That is that is a criticism of the kind of tactical in a framework, not necessarily the idea or the theory, which is perfectly benign. Right. And then there's also like the, um, the sense of like, uh, like personal competition for fitting into various categories and that giving you like the wisdom to tell other people what to do or being more morally, uh, just the other person where if you are a black trans woman versus a black disabled trans woman, well then the disabled one has more kits or whatever. Um, so then let's listen to what she has to say. Um, and you can, so the, right, the easiest category to add to your, I mean, you can't fake being a black person, uh, for the most part. You can, <laughs> well, we, and we can get into that. <laughs> well, we can avoid that one. <laughs> you can, uh, talk about how you are suffering from some kind of trauma and mental illness. Um, that's a internal thing or, I mean, so actually that is my suspicion is the number one thing increasing the openness of all of these people to to say yes i have ptsd is that there is an incentive to do so because that gives you greater authority as a victim among activist circles obviously many people do actually suffer from uh, mental illness or ptsd but and it's a good thing that it's been destigmatized so that you know people who suffer from it are okay talking about it and getting the help they need but there is a level of openness to talking about it among activist circles that I think it is virtually impossible that, that, that PTSD or diagnosable PTSD is this widespread at privileged liberal arts enclaves. Um, so that is, uh, I, I mean, you know, what, so there was a, there was a student, there, or there was a story and I think the Brown Daily Herald from a couple of years ago, um, right when I was first starting to write this book about how, how the, the activists were having fainting spells and panic attacks and, and dropping and failing all their classes because of the toll their activism was taking on their mental health. Uh, but obviously that's how you prove that you are the most committed progressive activist, right? If you are, if you're literally failing your class, you can't go to, you can't get out of bed, uh, in the morning because your activism has so consumed you. Um, I mean, that, that, that gives you power, I think, in these circles. Mm-hmm. Right. And you see this, you see this on Twitter sometimes, uh, when, you know, if you look at random people's like bios, you'll sometimes see them listing their, uh, like identity categories. And so like, just within the past couple of years, you know, people started putting like she, her, or he, him, or they, them in their Twitter bio. But then, more recently, I've seen a lot more people putting like, you know, borderline personality disorder uh, and, you know, uh, asexual, um, well, which isn't a mental disorder, but, um, you know, just p- listing all their, you know, mm-hmm. anxiety and depression, ADHD. Uh, it, you know, it used to be that mental illness was stigmatized and you would never put, a, you know, in, you know, you would never wear on your sleeve that you had depression or whatever. And then we kind of like moved past that era where, it became okay to publicly talk about having depression. And then it's, it's just like, it went a little too far where people are 
now being like, yeah, I have like seven, like, you know, uh, mental illnesses that are, uh, were, di- were diagnosed and so, you know, deal with that. Um, yeah, so I mean, I don't know. It, it's hard, it's hard for me to say like, are they, you know, is this just the, the ramifications of the destigmatization of mental illness? And now people are like, before they, if they, you know, they never would have been diagnosed with borderline personality disorder to begin with. And then once they get the diagnosis, they're like, okay, this is me. This is who I am. And like, if you want to be my friend, like, you should know this. And so I'm going to put it in my Twitter bio. What? <laughs> Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you're just like a progressive white dude and that's all, you make yourself more interesting if you're like a progressive white dude with like a history of, of PTSD, right? Or, or, or you know, if you have just one or two categories, you know, just being like a gay male or something is now ba- is now perceived by like the far left to be not e- to be almost not even worthy. I mean, look at like Pete Buttigieg, right? This right. is like not even a category of marginalization. It's barely one. Um, uh, th- there's so so. How do you how do you enhance your victimhood resume? I guess is is how I would describe it. Uh, if I'm being like very flippant and maximally uncharitable <laughs> to again a handful of people. Um, some of whom might actually have mental health issues, but I visited, um, I visited Arizona state, uh, for research for this book there. And there was like, like, I swear every, every couple steps, there was another sign saying, should you go visit like the mental health office? Are you having a bad day? Have you forgotten to breathe today? Are you doing okay? Like very over the top. I mean, there will be a level of like, there's a level of like encouraging people to think there's something wrong with them. Or I mean, it, you know, if, if you think about it that much, you'll say, well, maybe I do have trauma or PTSD, or especially mm-hmm. if we're defining it in much, in such broad terms, not like I actually like was in a mass shooting or a war zone or was viciously assaulted or raped, but just, just the trauma of me being me. I mean, we've all had trauma if we're dealing, if we're describing it that broadly, we've all had, you know, dark or bad or difficult moments in our lives. Um, and so, so the, the kind of coming to see, I guess, mundane difficulty that it is better for you to rise, uh, to, 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 uh, to surpass, but rather it's something clinical that you need assistance on that defines you as a person. I think that's bad Mm -hmm. probably. So, so how, so how did this happen that when you and I were in college 10 or so years ago, this term wasn't even, no one was saying it to it being like the reigning ideology. Like how did, how did that happen? I don't, cause I don't understand that. I mean, it spread from just like you said, the, the, a lot of these term trigger warnings, the mental health spread from forums or websites where communities of people who were probably were actually, or, or in much higher proportion of them were actually affected by them. Um, and it spread, uh, I, I think there was, there's perhaps there's an activist component maybe to those places um, and they kind of spread uh, to other people interested in them. And they were just, they were talked about on campus and they, they make their way into the broader media. Um, I mean, I like, I, so I am of the theory that it's not so much professors have sort of pushed this language or have indoctrinated students into this language, but more so that young people from seeking out sort of like online communities and talking to them, talking to each other all the time. I mean, social media allows us to communicate with anyone anywhere in the world very easily. Activists on one campus can see what activists at another campus are doing. I mean, that language change is like very organic usually, right? Not, not top down at all. 
So I think these things just just sort of gradually became more prevalent as more people heard about them, not that they were like taught to anyone specifically or or deliberately. Um, so I did. So I disagree very strongly with the kind of just general conservative notion that professors are indoctrinating their students. Um, most of the student activists I interviewed for this book you know, thought their professors were like useless at best, um, or at worst were like an enemy of the revolution for holding some generally more permissive view on sort of sexuality than the, the students do now. There is a real tension with kind of like a hippie ACLU kind of left professor, Uh um, and, and, and the experiences that they had in college, um, that now would be classified as sort of assault or abuse, um, by, by progressives. And I mean, like there are tensions evident there in like the Laura Kipnis drama, uh, which you probably know about and probably talked about on the show before things of that nature. Right. Okay. So it's a, it's a bottom up, not a top down, um, dissemination of the ideas. So, I I mean, it must like, again, have to do with technological, technological change in some respect because online forums, um, so, you know, social media, these are the way, ideas spread and, you know, uh, memes weren't a thing when I was a boy. Um, so, so do you think like if, if it wasn't for the internet and the pervasive pervasiveness of the internet, then these, these ideas would still be marginal? Uh, yeah, certainly. I mean, it's hard to, it's hard to say or describe what life would be like without as impactful a change as the internet uh, but yes, uh, they have made um, these things possible. I mean, social media has made it possible to find groups of like-minded people where you would have thought you were alone thinking this or believing this before. I mean, this is part of, and I mean, the last chapter of my book is about the rise of the alt-right. As I'm, t- the book is talking about various kind of young activist groups uh, that are that are new to the era we're living in. One of them is certainly the alt-right. This is a group that is only possible because of social media. Uh, I mean, with 100%, the people who, who, because A, social media encouraged people to have like this mocking, ironic, trolling, joking behavior that, that, that edges some people into deeply racist views. And also people who were already racist, you know, they would not have been comfortable saying so. They don't know where the other racists are to kind of, get together and social media, social media has made that very easy. That's also, that's a, now that's a pessimistic view of social media. Social media has also done a lot of good things for us. Uh, it's, you know, I, it's, and we're able to have conversations like the one you and I are having right now. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm not, I'm not disdaining technology as like a bad, bad thing at all, but certainly there have been bad effects. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, I see it as like, I, I mean, <laughs> this is like 30,000 feet view, but, um, for reading the book, it seemed like you were focused on like the power of ideas, especially uh, intersectionality, and then the ideas was are like spreading among the college students. And I was thinking like, and that and more of like a materials condition, material conditions idea of like what what has changed? Like, are, are the students like essentially different than I was 15 years ago, or is the difference the smartphone, YouTube, uh, social media, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? And, you know, the idea, the ideas and the technology, technological change obviously interact. Um, but I, yeah, I, I kind of do think that the, the main story isn't that like, um, you know, a woman in the eighties came up with this, I, this theory of intersectionality is that like the, the technology has, has enabled like any idea just to spread super rapidly. And like right now, these are the, these are the ideas that, that are spreading. Well, I mean, 
Yeah, you're probably, I mean, you're probably right. It's just, I, I mean, I was interested in, in tracing the roots of this philosophical concept that no one had heard of um, nine years ago that now you are required to adhere to if you are to be in good standing as a social change agent with the left. Mm-hmm. Um, is, is that, it's not, I, I guess it's not sort of holding the theory responsible as much as sort of the theory being, uh, or, or, or the tactics that the theory's adherence require being a good example of something that is different, um, even if, yes, social and technological change are what made all that possible. And this wouldn't have been the case if we were, you know, living in an era without smartphones. Um, I, I guess that's just not as much the book I wanted to write. I think I do kind of, I think I talk about that to some degree in the book, right? Talk about, I mean, I talk about the, the, so there, there, so you are right that, um, um, uh, students have more, uh, the pay, paying for college has gotten much more difficult, uh, college, uh, tuition. So this is an era area where I am more, I'm very sympathetic to met to some student complaints, right? It, they, the students who, who, who entered college from like 2008 on, have much worse sort of immediate prospects. They had to pay a lot more. They have debt. Um, it's not even clear their degrees are worth anything. Um, you know, these are in general things get better over time, but this is like something that's worse for people who than than it was for people who came before them, at least in a narrow sense. Um, that has you know that has probably impacted the way they see. I mean, many of them blame this on sort of capitalism. I might you know, dispute whether that's a fair characterization, but certainly it's, it's, if it, this has colored their views and made them like far more to the left economically. I mean, that makes some sense. Uh, again, I is not, I don't quite think adds up, but it's tremendously complicated, obviously. And, uh, and if that's, and that's probably affecting their views and they have, and they have, they are, they are right to feel mistreated in some broad sense by the economic like policies that that caused college to completely implode. Yeah, and I mean the you know the 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 cost of elite colleges is going up by like somewhere between a thousand and two thousand dollars per year, and so you know I I think it was around thirty five to forty when I was there, and probably it's now like fifty five or so, probably maybe more than that, and you start to think like, um, you know, what are they paying for, and also like. If they're paying sixty thousand dollars a year, well, then they better get a fucking good experience out of it because they could just, you know, they could uh, buy a really nice car with that much money or something else, go on, a, go on a, you know, a series of really cool vacations, and then it does. So then you have this like there's this dynamic where it's like, are these are the students like customers because you know they're they're handing over a lot of money. Um, are they like, you know, wards or like in a, in logo parentis thing, like essentially children who we are taking care of? Um, and, or yeah, what, what, why are they there exactly and paying so much money for it? And I think some of the examples that you cite were like the, the administration of the faculty bow to the students. I think the, the cost of the college has to come into this, except to some extent, you know, they like, what, what are they doing with all this money? It seems like they're, having more and more like associate deans being hired and it's mostly going to administration and some somewhat facilities and, and sometimes building like these absurd, like, you know, lazy rivers and stuff, stuff like this that a couple of colleges have built. Um, but yeah, it's like, yeah, if they're the customer, well, the customer's always right. 
And um, if we piss off the customers, then maybe you won't get future customers and then things will be bad for us. And, you know, there's a, few, a handful of colleges out there that are kind of like teetering on going out of business. Uh, Antioch, I think, is one of them and Hampshire College also. It's like, you know what? The students don't want to pay $50,000 to go to a hippie college anymore. Um, so, yeah, I don't I mean, do we I don't know if this is capitalism. Like it's something about markets and the inability of these um yeah, you know, the interplay with like a uh, subsidized loans of the government is part of it. Well, right. So, yeah. Well, then I would just say, then I would say, why, right. So I think that view is is probably mostly correct. The students are the customers, and they see it as an experience. And you know what they want is a more better time. And uh, colleges are spending all their money on yes, the associate dean of sustainable entrepreneurial diversity and friend for you and fun and nicer facilities. Um, so why we are subsidizing this at the federal level, I'm not quite sure. We have this misguided notion that education is, is important to, uh, to their professional, uh, chances. Although, you know, many of these students would have been better off going to a technical college or at the very least a less expensive college, um, perhaps majoring in something, going into debt is not worth it. I mean, if there was probably, I have, so I resist, you know, I'm a libertarian. I have, am like totally not on board with like Trumpist populism whatsoever in any respect. Probably the one thing that has like happened during this entire, I mean, it's, it's not related to Trump, but there's one thing that has happened in the entire sort of Trump presidency so far that has made me go, okay, burn it all down was the admission scandal, uh, was the, was the, the, the rich people just like, just uh, just cheating their way and and this so this broke after my book so it's not in my book but just the i mean the horror the like evil things they did and the the obscene amounts of money they paid to get their kids into slightly better colleges just for a better party experience um i it, it's it like was revolting to me well it's not always just i mean the famous um lori laughlin's daughter who's like a you know, Instagram influencer or whatever, like wanted a party experience, but like, you know, uh, one of them happened at Yale and I, I guess you could party at Yale, but like, you don't go to Yale to party. Like you can go to Arizona state to party. Um, so you go to yeah, Yale because no you want, because you want Yale million, on, your, on your diploma. Right. But there's no way it's worth, you know, like a million more between the two. Right. Le- it's just not, you'd be better off handing them a check for a million dollars and going to the, the less, the slightly less prestigious, in most cases, I mean, it's it is not worth that much more unless you what you just want to say you went there. Yeah. So wanna... part of it is about the parents being able to brag about yeah. their kids who are off in New Haven or whatever. And then, yeah, I mean, it's, it's like, you know, but part of it is like personal brand. Like it, it looks better if you're applying in jobs to have an Ivy League school than to have an non-Ivy League school. Um, yeah. So I mean, like... I would rather have a million dollars and have gone to, <laughs> like, I, I mean, I would I, Michigan State instead of Michigan or something. But, um, but it, it and 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 their vehicle for for cheating this system was the test taking industry, which you mentioned, and the the athletic industrial complex uh, was fooling the like the water polo coach and the athletic dean person, whoever. Um, these, these, so this is a story of the test taking industries, corruption of higher ed, and also I think the sports administrator corruption yeah. of higher ed, both just like, just utter, just disgusting sort of, um, sort of things. Yeah. I hope there is more criticism of college sports. I don't know if it's coming because Americans love college sports, especially football and basketball, but, um, 
it is absurd. If you step back, there's no reason at all that the, uh, you know, the minor leagues of football and basketball are yeah. like state schools. It yeah. doesn't make any sense at all. And yeah, they do, you know, as I'm, 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 I'm dropping Yale a lot in this conversation as a Yale, former Yale student. Uh, one of my freshman year, uh, suite mates was a baseball recruit. Uh, he was obviously a little different than a lot of the other kids in terms of his attitude and preparation. Um, but he, uh, you know, he was good at baseball and, uh, you know, he joined Deke, which is the frat that, uh, Brett Kavanaugh was in as well, as, as, as well as George W. Bush and George H. W. Bush, um, but was just like the party frat, um, uh, during my era. So yeah, so they really do like change, especially for some reason, the Ivy, the Ivies have, like 30 sports teams and yet they have water polo and diving and sailing and all this other weird stuff. And it's just like a historical accident that these exist, but they have nothing to do with education or even like you could make an argument that like football, like school should have football teams for school spirit or something, but beyond much beyond that, it, it doesn't make any sense at all. Um, yeah. Okay. Let me, uh, let me ask you about um, uh, no platforming. Um, yeah. Which probably people, know this term by now, but what, 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 what is this? How would you define no platforming? I mean, I would define that as just as shutting down someone or making it so they can't speak on campus, um, either by getting them disinvited or by threatening violence or imposing security costs or, you know, shouting over them. So the event doesn't take place, which is different than just protesting or heckling, which I'm okay with. Um, uh, you, you can express your opposition to the event as long as you don't like completely prevent it from taking place. Right, and you describe some of these uh, that took place. I guess the most dramatic ones were, were related to Milo Yiannopoulos at Berkeley, where I guess he he tried to come twice, or did he? He actually was there once, but tried twice or something. And yes. there were all sorts of uh, anti-fascist types there, and other people causing ruckus, wanting to like shut down the ability of him to come, and it, be, it became like totally absurd. So, you know, this is like been going on, I guess, for a while. So. In my college days, there was only, I don't remember this ever at happening. At Yale? Yes, at Yale. I don't remember this ever happening, but there, there was one funny, funny occurrence related to a protest that I ended up writing about a year ago because the two people involved were Jamie Kerchick and Eliana Johnson, who are both uh, DC bigwigs now. But back when they were, um, college sophomores and there was a big debate about the Iraq war, they, they pulled a little stunt, um, during this, uh, talk by the neoconservative scholar Daniel Pipes. But anyway, there was a protest during it that just consisted of people in the audience standing up and putting uh, like black cloth across their mouths and holding up signs. And like they, they remained standing uh, like throughout as I remember it. Um, but, but no one, there was no idea that like the thing to do would be like rush the stage, pull the fire alarm or, you know, cause such a ruckus through chanting or whatever that the event had to be canceled. Um, so where did it, is this just an escalation of tactics? Like, how did this become the thing that where people were decided, like, Milo Yiannopoulos, you know, Christina Hoff Summers, uh, who's the guy, the, the Belgian guy, um, Charles Murray, like, we need to shut, like, shut this, this down and they can't even talk? Well, I, I think it's because it's, it's not a, it's not a, uh, what, what they were doing then was a, we disagree with this person and we're expressing our disagreement. Um, I mean, if you want to discredit a neoconservative, just let them talk would be my uh, <laughs> my view anyway. Now, now that is not the view. Now the view is that letting this person talk causes emotional harm to marginalized people on the campus. Uh, if you suffer emotional harm, it's on a, the same spectrum, perhaps, as having suffered physical harm in some way. So it is our job to make sure the people 
our allies, the people we care about, are not compromised in this way. So, so when they're shutting down people, it's, it's not – I mean, this is the impression I got from my conversations with them for this book. They're not saying, oh, yeah, this, we're doing this because we think this is really influential and smart, and this is how we stop this idea from spreading. They're saying this is how we, we prevent harm. This is how we promote safety. Um, it's the difference uh, between saying, like, you know, I don't think Kevin Williamson should work at The Atlantic because I don't want his ideas expressed and saying Kevin Williamson can't work at The Atlantic because that's, that would make The Atlantic a, a hostile workplace environment for me, a woke 23-year-old staff member, which is, I think, what the case actually was. Uh, that, I, that, now that is a, I think that's a very critical difference, actually, in those two ways of thinking uh, that, that is, that is the di- part of the difference in lefty activism. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I, don't, I don't know if those are exactly parallel to cases because, like, Hiring someone and paying them and having them like coming to the editorial meetings or whatever is different than like a one-off like speech, you know, in the auditorium or something. Um, but I mean, I think the no platforming thing is like it's stupid on its face because like, well, I think you know if we're looking at this from like a consequentialist um, perspective, like it just brings more attention to the person. Yeah, like especially when the person gets like assaulted, as happened in like a couple of these cases, um, then you know you single one person out, and in the social media world, everyone can learn about it. So you know, it's just a super strategy. It's it's giving them what they want. I'm sure Milo was happy, you know, having like parts of Berkeley shut down because he wanted to give a stupid talk there. Um, so it's so just from the ta- tactical sense, it seems like a like a poor tactic, and you know, people weren't. I don't know why Charles Murray was like speaking in the year 2017 or whatever, because he doesn't have a new book, but like people weren't thinking about him for a couple years. And then suddenly it's like, oh, we have to think about Charles Murray again because a bunch of students, like whatever they did, you know, ran on stage and wouldn't let him talk. So I think that, that's stupid. Um, so yeah, any, any, um, if there's any, uh, young protesters who are somehow still listening to this, I would advise them just on tactical grounds. Don't do, don't do this. But at the other time, on the other side, I, I, I do wonder whether, I feel like there was kind of a blip of stories like this, and I haven't heard any in a while. Maybe people just got sick of hearing about it. Maybe the students figured out it wasn't a smart thing to do. Or maybe the conservative people are not going to go speak at Oberlin or whatever. But it's also like, when I, uh, you know, once you leave college, like, you're probably not going to a lot of public lectures. Like, this is not, like, 1850. Um, like, we have other means of communication now. Like, people watch TV and YouTube. Um and anyone, anyone with a view can speak into their camera and put it on YouTube. You don't need to see them in person, uh, for them to spread their, you know, spread their ideas around. So it is kind of antiquated, this idea that like the speaker's coming and then we're all gonna sit in the auditorium and like listen. Like this is like something that was happening hundreds of years ago. We have different technology now and people can still watch Charles Murray videos, <laughs> whether or not he goes to speak somewhere. Um, so I, I do, I do feel like it's, it is, I don't know, just kind of like, it, it's almost like play acting on both sides, especially when it's someone like Milo, like he's there to provoke, they're there to provoke, they both go home happy because Milo caused a stir and people are talking about him and the protesters feel like they defeated the fascist or whatever and then they all go home smiling. So it, they, yeah, there's just kind of a, in, in, some, in some respects, a, like a phoniness to the, <laughs> to the, the entire performance. Yeah, I mean, there were uh, some college Republican groups were explicit about that's what they were doing. They were the, there was, a, I think, National Review wrote about 
the internal um, discussions of, I don't remember if it was Stanford or Dartmouth or some college Republican group, maybe neither of those, uh, but how it was like, yeah, who should we bring? Well, let's bring Milo because that will really tick off everyone on the left and they're going to come and protest and it'll be a great a great thing for our event. You know, if you if, if you just have whoever the speaker is, especially if it's someone like really deranged or like really controversial, um, just if they give their stupid talk to like two racist people in the audience and there's no spectacle and no one else is there and there are no protesters, I have to think they view that as, as an embarrassing missed opportunity or loss. Um, it, it, Charles Murray, I think if, if, if you disagree with him, perhaps you should go and make your disagreement known as long as, I mean, in the Q&A or maybe in a protest before or something, because I think he's someone who has um, ideas um, that are worth engaging in the public sphere. Um, That was not true for all of these people who were kind of making the rounds on campus. Um, Now, you you mentioned, so, right, when they get off campus aside, we we can just watch videos of people uh, talking, but of course there is like a bent to activism um, that actually on both the right and the left, the left saying, you know, they want, I mean, we just lived through like a YouTube scandal where there's people on the left that want YouTube to like more star- strongly promote, uh, 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 punish or, or disallow, uh, harassment, uh, broadly defined or more broadly defined than the law would, would define mm-hmm. harassment. And then at the same time, conservatives saying that we demand protection, that we are not, we would not, we do not deserve in any legal sense because these are privately uh, owned companies. Um, so there is a, I, I think that a sort of, I call it cancel culture when we're talking about it in sort of the broader social media world, not just on campus, the kind of, this shouldn't be allowed, this should be disdained. Um, there should be rules to prevent this kind of thing that, uh, that, uh, harms me or I don't like. Obviously, now these situations get m- tremendously more complicated by the fact that YouTube can really do whatever it wants and is, it, it's within its rights to have conflicting policies and in fact, there is no way its policies will ever be enforced in a way that makes everyone or, or most people happy because I firmly believe it is like totally impossible to fairly adjudicate, you know, like the gazillion hours of yeah. footage that appear on the platform every day. Um, and there will always be like, well, why is this allowed? But this is not. And why is this allowed? And this is not like th- there is absolutely no way they will ever 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 figure that out no algorithm can do it <laughs> at least not for the next hundred years um so anyway yeah i i agree with that and um yeah and the you know the the, the, the from the past couple of weeks the free speech fights over youtube are kind of strange to me because yeah it is like a, it's a private company like it can do if it if it decided that like any clip related to baseball was going to be kicked off. It could just do that. And yes. that would be legal. <laughs> and then, uh, and the, you know, um, uh, the marketplace would supposedly fix that by, you know, the baseball, you know, some independent investors would create the baseball channel or something, but like, you know, they, they, they already take off a lot of stuff. I assume related to like, I know they take off stuff that their algorithm tells them is copy is like copyrighted in some way, like, um, such as music and, and then pornography also they they take off and then there's you know there's also like uh, you know videos of uh, violent acts being committed against people and, and stuff like that, that that they take off but yeah no they're never gonna, people are never going to be totally happy and but also it's a, yeah it's a private company like this is not like Boston Common or something like we're all speechifying like <laughs> this is this is a company well, 
conservatives have decided that a little thing called Section 230, which is uh, which is a federal um, law, um, they decided that this is has gives these platforms an extra protection um, against being sued so long as they remain sort of neutral platforms rather than publishers of specific viewpoints. So conservatives and I, I completely disagree with this argument, but this is what conservatives are saying. Oh, so so they can't. They can't be selective. They can't be choosy. If they're doing that, they don't deserve Section 230 protection. Um, so that because they have this extra protection against being sued for like if you, you know, if you write like a defamatory comment on a YouTube video, you can't sue YouTube. That's what Section 230 pr- uh, protects. So because of that, uh, they're required to, to treat us even handedly. Um, I, I think that argument is, is wrong, is, is not actually true to what uh, Section 230 does not does not use the word neutral. Um, And the extra protection against being sued, I think is generally a good thing because I'm not in love with like frivolous libel lawsuits um, on like strict free speech grounds. Um, But anyway, that's the argument conservatives have made. I think it's very whiny and (laughs) self-serving and it has been pretty hysterical to, I mean, and this is something wildly believed now on the right. It has been amazing to watch the right completely just change its mind about whether regulation of companies uh, would be is not only desirable, but like we need to do it right now. And it's the most pressing issue facing America. Yeah. And Trump is leading the way with this. Uh, yes. You know, by this idea that conservatives are being like shadow banned on Twitter, which is, even seems to not like exist at all. And all these all these other kind of like conspiratorial thinking. Um, let me ask about um I feel like we kind of did not delve into all the all the uh, yes. <laughs> all the issues that you really raise in here. So maybe, and we've already gone an hour. We can go a little bit more if that's all right with you. So mm-hmm. let's talk about the um, the chapter on sexual assault on campus and uh, and me too as well. So I kind of remember like you know in the couple of years before the Harvey Weinstein scandal broke, like that you know there were store uh, you see increasing number of stories about this. Um, uh, about problems with due process in prosecution of sexual misconduct on campus. And I think you probably wrote some of them. Emily Yaffe wrote some of them. There was the famous debacle um, with Rolling Stone and University of Virginia. And yeah, it was kind of like the narrative was kind of becoming like, okay, like there's a, there's a problem here. The, the Obama administration went too far in, in this uh, way that you can explain better than I can. And then like, and then like uh, the Weinstein scandal broke and the Me Too movement started and like, I kind of thought like, oh, well, maybe like, maybe we, you know, maybe it was even worse than we thought. Because, you know, if you had told me 10 years ago that like the most like beloved family sitcom actor in history and the most powerful man in Hollywood and uh, like dozens of other powerful men had been like serial abusers of women and it was an open secret and they were just like get- getting away with it somehow, I would be like, oh, that doesn't you know, that's kind of crazy. Like, how would they be getting away with it? But it turns out like, oh, that was true. You know, like Bill, Bill Cosby and Weinstein were serial rapists. And, you know, there was a lot going on that especially men weren't aware of. Um, so the, the, it's not parallel to college campuses because, there's, you know, there's no one, there's no student who's like Harvey Weinstein with that level of power over uh, women on a college campus, I would think. Um, but... Yeah, it's it's like maybe there, you know, maybe there's just a lot more sexual assault going on that women aren't reporting. So, well, what do you think about yeah. that? Yeah, um, well, I think uh, so. I think the the high profile uh, Me Too uh, incidents are even more uh, 
even more dislike, even less like, that's a better way of saying it, um, the campus incidents because not only is there not someone with like the kind of, I mean, there are professors probably. I mean, who, there were people, professors, administrators in positions of power um, who who willfully and deliberately abused people the way Weinstein did. I mean, there's Larry Nasser, right? The Michigan State right. uh, uh, a doctor. Um, so there were those people. Um, but the kinds of uh, cases I'm mostly talking about are 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 not like those in that they are not deliberate. Um, they are they are and they're disputes usually uh, where both parties uh, have have taken drugs and alcohol and it is cloudy and and confusing. Often there was no idea that hooking up was going to take place and then it was somewhat uh, 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 agreed to on both parties and then things get a little confusing. You know these are not. These are not serial predators the way Harvey Weinstein and Larry Nasser is a serial predator. These are not people uh, who who like this is their modus operandi is 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 you know is abusing women this way. These are these are these are like hookups gone wrong. I mean sometimes it's more than that. Sometimes there was there's bad behavior on the part of the men, but these are much messier situations. Um, the kinds of cases that were increasingly being adjudicated under what I thought were farcical due process standards required by a sub agency of the Obama Education Department that was responsible for interpreting Title IX, which is of course the federal statute that mandates uh, sex and gender equality in education. Uh, the Obama administration said that this also requires more stringent policing of sexual misconduct um, in ways that uh, I think threaten due process uh, or made it more less likely that a, an accused person, often a man, uh, often men, uh, often, by the way, men of color, athletes, uh, immigrants disproportionately represented in those accused and adjudicated for these. No surprise there, uh, given the inequities of the normal criminal justice system. Uh, but, you know, there, there were things like we have to I mean, they, the, the evidence threshold was explicitly lowered by the government. That wasn't even, I think, the biggest deal compared to some of the other things. Uh, they they dis uh, they strongly uh, suggested not allowing cross-examination, not allowing the parties in a dispute to to ask each other's questions or even for anyone to ask questions. There was a pushing of the single investigator model in which just one administrator uh, uh, decides who to investigate for the proceeding. There's no hearing. They decide who they talk to about this. In some of these examples, they were not recording their conversations. They were then just assembling a report based on their impressions or recollections of who they talked to about what happened. I mean, these are in cases sometimes where there was actually no dispute. I, I had at least one case that I covered where where the alleged victim did not see herself as such because she never filed a complaint. It was with her boyfriend. This was someone else who didn't like their relationship for some reason because this was a situation where anyone who becomes aware of sexual misconduct is required to report it. Uh, I mean, some of these are are like, I'm not exaggerating. There were a lot of these cases and they were downright Kafka-esque of just like cook, clearly hookups. Um, and at the very least, there was no evidence to suggest this person should be expelled at you know, lives being ruined because of this. And then that prompts lawsuits, lawsuits that the universities have lost like a hundred times because when you, you know, when it goes before a judge, judges who like due process uh, say, well, you can't do this. This is insane. And they, they slap the uh, universities with a, uh, with a, uh, with a, uh, uh, financial liability. So the universities were caught between this rock and the hard place where the, the government is saying you have to do it this way or your financial, uh, your federal funding is at risk. And then they do it that way, and then they get sued. 
Um, so I, you know, I, I'm, I disagree with a lot of what Trump does, but you know, one thing that I think was absolutely correct to do was Betsy DeVos rescinded the, the Obama era title nine guidance and came out with more, I mean, on it, I know every, people really don't like Betsy DeVos, but honestly, this guidance is like much more sane. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure it's going to make any kind of difference because many universities have vowed to, it was not guidance that said you have to do this. It was guidance that said you don't, you don't have to do this anymore. But many universities have vowed to do it the exact same way. And, of course, they hired tons of Title IX coordinators right. in the last 10 years who I, I assume will – I mean, they, they will not have the single investigator model anymore, I believe. I believe that the guidance says you cannot do that. You have to have a hearing, uh, which is uh, which is better, although hearings are also cap- more than capable and have proven more than capable of rendering um, just absurd verdicts. Um, but it's, it's not that sexual misconduct is not a problem on college campuses or that these blurry cases did not involve some level of wrongdoing. Um, but I, I think many of them did not rise to the level of or there is sort of mutual blame or there is mutual learning to go around or there is uh, there should be some opportunity, um, especially if the, if the victim does not want the other person. To, so, this, so this is one really good thing that comes out of the DeVos guidance says if both parties are okay with working out some other like restorative justice kind of agreement where we all learn that maybe our choices were not, you know, maybe the man's choices were really bad, but maybe we, we can all learn from this experience and have, and make it up in some way other than suspensions, expulsions, et cetera. Uh-huh. You can do that. That's so that's something that comes out of the DeVos guidance that is just absolutely a, a dramatic improvement. Yeah. When, so I guess this is one of the chapters where I, w- I was nodding along with you more than shaking my head at you. Um, <laughs> but when these stories started coming out, you know, five or so years ago, um, I remember thinking like, well, why don't they like, why don't they just go, okay, why don't they just go to the cops? So the, so the obvious objection to that is like often women uh, have like very legitimate reasons for not going to the cops. And like how many of the women who Harvey Weinstein assaulted, like went to the cops were not sure, but it was, it wasn't, you know, it was not very many. Um, but Certainly the police are more able to take, you know, to handle a, a sexual assault allegation than like a handful of college administrators. And, you know, if someone, if someone is, is like guilty of rape, like they should probably be in jail, not just expelled from college where, and still walking among the general populace where they could, uh, presumably rape again. So yeah, so, so a lot of these stories are gray area kind of things where, um, the, the, the facts are uncertain and, uh, you know, uh, drugs and alcohol are involved. Um, but yeah, it's kind of like, if this is a, like, rape is a crime, sexual assault is a crime, why are we treating this in the same way we would treat, like, plagiarism accusations or, like, a, a, an argument between roommates or something in the dorms? Like, this is, this is serious. <laughs> Let's get the actual authorities involved. So is there, is, is there any movement towards that to, to, like, no, uh, the activists hate the view you just outlined. Uh, the Title IX activists on campus, um, and there are, there is such a thing. There is an activist group with the numeral nine, the one X tattooed to their ankles. It, it has been so Im- important to their, their activism. Um, the activists are dead set against, um, the view that yes, this is something for the police. You should, they should go to the police. Um, it, it, they, in their view, you have a right to an education, uh, free from sexual misconduct. It is guaranteed by the, by Title IX, by the, by the federal government. And they had the, they have the right to have this adjudicated at the campus level, um, in a, in a victim centered, trauma informed sort of way. 
Um, again, this is sort of the, the weaponization of harassment law I alluded to earlier, um, using it in a, in a, 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 a way, um, to, to punish, uh, people, uh, that I'm, that I'm sure they genuinely believe to be or perceive to be, um, um, sexual, uh, 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 um, assaulters, but of course there, and the, the whole ideology of like believing victims, which is so important to this movement. I mean, you can't, you, I mean, it's fine for that to be your, your operating procedure. You like, you, you of course can believe victims like as a matter of habit, but you can't, if you're like an administrator charged with adjudicating these matters, like that absolutely cannot be your mindset. That's just totally unfair. Um, the average time that a Title IX complaint is filed is one year after the alleged behavior. Um, again, these are circumstances involving like copious alcohol abuse. I cannot, I cannot get across how, like how much blackout binge drinking is a, is a part of like virtually all of these cases. So again, these are things where the memories are going to be very hazy anyway. Like, like you're going to have no memory of these things and we're going to be starting to gather like the evidence here like a year later. I mean, it's just like, you're just not going to arrive at a, at a, at a, there's not going to be evidence, like it's crazy to think that's the way uh, it should be done. I mean, and then, and there are also some weird sort of like presumptions being made that like, almost like conservative presumptions that like the man is the like, like active party in the like seeking a sexual encounter and women are like passive flowers or something like i mean some of these are there was there was a there was a case where like the man like passed out first and the woman continued a sexual experience with him and then later she fought she went to the title line office first so then she's viewed as a victim even though he was passed out while she was like still con- like like is it so is it just whoever whoever goes first is the uh-huh. is the is the victim i mean and i saw at least one case where a man had gone the next morning, first thing, as soon as he was sober enough to do so or, or, or conscious enough to do so, um, I suspect because he worried she was going to, you know, they both couldn't remember what happened. It's better to be the first complainant. I mean, that's, n- that's not a system we want to engineer where uh-huh. people are like rushing to the office to be the first to file a complaint because you get a, a sort of special consideration if you do that. And I've seen, I've seen reports. I've seen lawsuits. I've seen reports from administrators where they, where they ignored or took far less seriously a secondary claim filed against the victim because they said, well, you're retaliating. You're not allowed to retaliate under Title IX. Uh-huh. Um, crazy stuff. Like, truly crazy stuff. I'm sorry. It is. Yeah. And, yeah, the, you said you used the words Kafkaesque, and I think that word uh, popped into my mind when I was reading that chapter. Um, you know, wouldn't, like, is there any movement towards limiting binge drinking by undergraduates? Because that does seem to be at the root of a lot of these problems, not the total problems we're talking about, but, the, like, especially the sexual assault problems. And, yeah, I mean, you know, America's a very contradictory view of alcohol use, and in most colleges, like, you can do whatever you want. Um, we certainly have, we have a binge drinking culture on college campuses that, um, that I think does not quite exist to this nearly the same extent in, for instance, Canada, from what I've heard from people who are at some of those universities. Um, I mean, paradoxically, I actually think uh, abolishing the drinking age, uh, this, is, this sounds counterproductive, but might help because they can't drink. So all these incidents are taking place in like dorms and house party environments where these are, you know, teens consuming like tons and tons of like if they're consuming it by the bottle, they're you know, in the, in the mid 
mystery trough where you dump a bunch of alcohol and like juice into it. You know, you're at like a friend of a friend's basement. There's gatekeeping by the older students who want to take advantage of younger students. There's all sorts of like very bad incentives for like the underground drinking culture. Whereas if they could just drink in bars, um, I mean, bars often feel at least some sort of liability sense for making sure you're going to get a home okay. And like, I don't want to overstate this because it could be that getting rid of the, of, of the drinking age does not have any, does not lessen the, the bin drinking culture whatsoever. Um, I don't think it would make it worse. I don't see how it could be worse. Um, but so my, I mean, I'm, I'm a libertarian, so I think the drinking age should be abolished anyway, but, um, you I want, you I, want babies <laughs> drinking beer, don't you? <laughs> well, it, it, you joke, but I, I think if maybe if you learn to drink it responsibly, you know, we adults drink throughout the day and then just sort of go to bed at a reasonable hour. Cause we're tired. Uh, if they learn to do that, um, you know, maybe this, uh, this would be a slightly less bad thing. But yeah. The, I, I mean, that's the sense I have that like, you know, in France when, where wine during meals is yeah. much more just a natural part of it and not like this forbidden, you know, alluring thing that you can only get like after you like cross the barrier over the age or yeah, it's all well, underground. Cause they, drink, Cause they drink all at once. They, they, they'll take like five shots at once. They'll shotgun a bunch of because if it's illegal, if you don't want to get caught doing it, you have an incentive to consume large quantities right. at once. So you're not like still holding your drink when the cop comes or the party gets cleared out or whatever. Yeah. So there is, so that's probably a bigger uh, effect that like it being illegal means they're downing a bunch. They're pre-gaming like unbelievable. Uh, whereas just sort of responsible taking a sip now and then day drinking is actually less likely to get you into trouble. Yeah. Okay, let's let's do maybe one more one more of these topics because we have gone a little okay. bit long, but um, I feel like we could do a second episode because there's a lot of stuff we didn't cover. We haven't covered the trans. You have chapters on the trans on trans issues, uh, Black Lives Matter and race issues, uh, the DSA and socialism. But let's talk about your last chapter, which is uh, about the alt right and uh, conservative far right young activists. Um, so, yeah, so. Did you was this part of the original conception that you would talk about conservatives as well, or were you yeah. or, or were you originally thinking just uh, you know left radicals? No, I made very clear when I pitched the book um, I didn't want to be perceived as, as focusing solely on the left or saying that that like free speech problems are solely a, a problem of the left. So I always wanted to do um, a chapter on um, the alt right, which is something that didn't exist ten years ago. Is a phenomenon of Trump era activism. Um, and so I was always interested in writing about them from the beginning. And actually that's, I think that's probably one of the first chapters I, I put together. Um, it just, the timing of when their protest that I went to happened or something like that. Yeah. So I, uh, yeah, we've, I mean, most, you know, everyone knows about the alt-right at this point and people probably know the, um, you know, the basics of it. Um, I think there's, I mean, so, okay. So one of the differences is that the alt-right people are more dispersed more alienated, like if they're college students, they're not a member of their colleges, college Republicans or something. And like the college alt-right club doesn't exist probably, um, probably anywhere. So it's, it's a much more, you know, it, it, it as you said, it has, it's mediated by the internet and couldn't exist without the internet because it's so people all, all over the country, just in like basements and so forth with a couple of the handful of prominent people like Richard Spencer uh, at the forefront. Um, so yeah, how would you like compare th compare these groups, the 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 left college radicals that we've been talking about, and and the alt right well, radicals? 
Well, and part part of the reason I spend most of the book on the left is is in the spaces I'm talking in, you know, college activism. Right, the left outnumbers the right dramatically. There are very few members of the alt right. Um, I mean, I, you know, I started working on this book three years ago, so it, there was they were I think they were increasing in influence, or at least, at least I, I, but again, it might just be perception or, or attention being paid to them was increasing up through Charlottesville, uh, which I, I suspect was the high water mark for people actively participating in alt-right sort of things. And it, and they have – that went so disastrously for them that um, I think they have retreated back into the shadows to some degree, not entirely. Obviously, their, their sort of online harassment campaigns are, are I'm certain, keenly felt by those who, who uh, suffer them. I think there's probably three types of people – sort of involved in the alt-right at least uh so one would be um just old school racists probably because their parents were racist you know their parents would have been like david duke sympathetic people um and they're just they're hardcore racists um they can be deprogrammed uh maybe and have been deprogrammed in some circumstances um but they're kind of an older school racism then there's a third of them who are the trollish humor band like they think it's cool and provocative and edgy to share like memes of like jewish people in ovens and things like that and they'll say oh no we're joking or we're just doing it to to troll you but like there's a kernel of actual belief in the racist ideology inside that that like they become more and more consumed by, um, or they fall out of it or they, they grow up or something and they can, they're, they're also capable of changing their minds. But, uh, but, but those people can masquerade as more sort of as all, they call themselves alt light sometimes or as more proper conservatives. And then the third group are just people who are emotionally damaged, um, looking for some meaning in their lives who I believe would join literally any cult they came across mm-hmm. um they 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 could have joined isis if the circumstance like afforded it to the, like they are people who will get involved in things for crazy people because they they have mental and emotional health problems um and and are very hard to help um but they'll move on from the alt-right to something crazy perhaps uh but not in a healthy way where the other two groups might be helped so th- that's my broad conception of the people who comprise the alt-right obviously their ideological leader is richard spencer who is someone i interviewed for this book who interestingly actually sees his product as more related in some sense to the left than the right because he has a fondness for identity politics at least applied to white people um i mean the alt-right in its most fundamental belief is the idea that your race matters race is very real your membership, your, your, you, your membership in the, in the white race is important and is what gives you meaning and is worth promoting and fostering and protecting. Um, I mean, I think this is going much further than like identity groups on the left. Obviously there's a, there's a malicious component or a separate, a force or separation and inferiority, um, sort of component to the white nationalism version. Um, but, but there is some similar like, the idea that identity is the most important thing. Um, whereas I, a libertarian would say the most important thing about you is that you are an individual and all individuals have rights regardless of any other, any aspects of their identity are not, are, are do, do not affect your rights or your status as a person deserving rights. Right. Yeah. There's a, yeah, the identitarian part is, um, is key. And 
you know, there's some, there's, <laughs> while many people on the alt-right are anti-Semites, there are, there's at least some of them who, um, are like pro-Israel, they just want all the Jews in America to go there, and then they'll be perfectly happy right. that all the Jews are over there instead of over here. Um, so I, I feel like, yeah, the, the alt-right is kind of in decline. It, it's hard to know how powerful it ever was if it was kind of a media creation. Um, a lot of the, you know, Spencer is certainly not as, as prominent as he used to be. If Milo was a part of this movement, uh, he's not as prominent as he used to be. And I think Twitter actually did do... Imp- they did improve their, you know, banning of people who are sending like Jews in ovens memes. Um, I, I had some, you know, like direct message conversations with some alt right types who were like trolling me a couple years ago, and those accounts are all gone now. Um, and so, you know, I, I assume Twitter took their accounts away, not that they deleted it, but 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 who knows? So they're not they're not in this like more mainstream space. They're kind of siloed in like. 4chan and 8chan and other weird like corners of the internet where they can't, can't they can have less effect on like the rest of us but then they like it does seem like there's the, the at least the ideology of the alt-right is inspiring kind of uh lone wolf attackers um that are kind of popping up sparingly there was one apparently this happened yesterday at the like central federal courthouse in Dallas, but thankfully the guy, the the guy was not able to kill anyone. But you know he was in tactical gear with a submachine gun, and police officers killed him before he was able to kill anyone. And the reporting was like he was a 22 year old uh, guy who had like far right memes on his Facebook page. Um, so yeah, maybe the you know the splintering is like yeah, and then there's like these incel incel violence thing that has happened in like at least some small amount. Um, yeah, so these people are kind of still around, and they're still like maybe talking to each other, but they're they have a hard time breaking through, except when one of them decides that like they want to kill a bunch of people, and then they can like, and then they try to do that. Yeah, uh, so th- and this came up at the committee hearing I testified at uh, a couple weeks ago. Um, uh, there, I, I think a greater uh, percentage of the kind of domestic terrorist style attacks. Um, in recent years are perpetrated by right-wing groups or right, right, not even groups, uh, right, just right-wing people. But we're still talking about a very small number overall. Um, I mean, this is a small number of attacks. Um, so obviously it's something to be aware of. It's, I, I wouldn't want the federal government to freak out about it too much and start like monitoring people. I mean, this is kind of what we were discussing at the hearing. Um, you know, and, and, and I think the, the Democrats and the, the other people on the panel were sort of their agenda was, you know, we pay so much attention to, to Muslim, uh, sort of terrorism domestically and internationally, but, or domestically, but, but, you know, these right wing people, there's more of their, they, they've killed more people. They're causing more damage right now. So why, why are we so obsessed with, uh, Muslims? And I mean, my, I'm, you know, I'm not a conservative or right wing person at all. So my response is like, fine, we probably were too obsessed with with, uh, with Muslim terrorism relative to the dangers. Um, it, it, it's not that I think, well, we should take this threat so much. More, I mean, from a government policy perspective, I mean, we can uh, obviously should be cognizant about the, the damage um, sort of right wing people can do. But a lot of the groups that track sort of the hate and the assaults and the violence, when I review their sort of numbers and arguments for that these things are so dramatically higher, it, it comes across as very unconvincing. Um, 
you know, like the Southern Poverty Law Center's like map of hate groups. Yeah, every year there's way more hate groups. But now maybe like each of those groups has like three people where there was one group with six people before. And then when I I started looking state by state and half of them were black nationalist groups that I think represent like no threat to us whatsoever. I mean, they're going to they harass the Covington kids. But other than that, um, and, uh, you know, what, what, this is some guy with like a like a like a, a Confederacy memorabilia store like this gets counted as like a hate group for for the, I, I, for the SPLC specifically. Anyway, they, they, this looks like overstating uh, a, a problem. So, yes, I, I I'm I, I don't want to uh, worry too much about it. I, I think I, so I think. The dom- the the substantial way the alt right is causing harm to people is in the form of online harassment, uh, which has been massive. Um, and but that's not an area for the government to address, so it's not something we get to talk about at the committee hearing. Yeah, and, yeah, and like I said, I think I think like I um I don't think Twitter has done much well in the past like ten years, but I think they did do a better job about getting um some of these types of people, the alt right or neo Nazi people, off of the platform. Um, however they did it. Okay. We've, we've been going on a while, but there's, but there's one last thing I wanted to ask you, which is, um, so Lee Bollinger, if that's how you say his name, um, president of Columbia university wrote a piece that appeared in the Atlantic, um, titled is free speech on campus is doing just fine. Thank you. Um, so for people who don't remember Lee Bollinger, his, I guess most prominent (laughs) occurrence on appearance on the national stage was when, um, Iranian president Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, uh, came to talk uh, and was invited or something uh, to speak at Columbia. This would have been like 2005 or six. And it caused a big to do in a way that looks kind of silly looking back on it. But uh, yeah, it was like a national debate at the time of, you know, should he be allowed? Should Ahmadinejad, this awful uh, anti-Semite for sure, foe of America, perhaps um, be allowed to speak on college campus. And Bollinger um, was a like steadfast you know, supporter of his appearance and having like an open forum at which, you know, some of the students, you know, challenged on Medina Jad. Um, and so like, you know, a dozen or so years later, um, Bolger, still president of Columbia says, uh, wrote an article kind of saying like, yeah, things are, you know, things are not as bad as you hear. Um, so what did you, what did you think of, of that piece and that argument? Um, so Bollinger, before he was president of Columbia, was actually president of the University of Michigan. Uh, not when I was there, but but so when I was at Michigan, he was he was at Columbia, but he was a past president of the University mm-hmm. of Michigan. So we paid we being the student paper for which I worked, the main sort of left of center campus paper, paid a lot of attention to what Bollinger was doing because he was a past president of the university. So I remember this controversy very well. Um, it was when I had first started working at the paper and, you know, we, it was Republican politicians, right. Who were, who had a problem with this. And we, we, the left student paper wrote an editorial saying, you know, that we demand, this is good. Free speech is good. Even if controversial speakers, we should, you know, it's very sort of boilerplate ACLU type argument. Um, so, so I, I, I mean, I agree with – I think the headline of his piece is something like there's no crisis. And again, I, I say I don't de- describe it as a crisis. So if he's just saying things are not as bad as you think, he very, he very well may be right depending on how bad you, whoever's listening to this, think things are. Mm-hmm. Um, that said, you know, if he tried to bring um, a very far-right politician, um, what if he tried – I don't know. What if he tried to host Judge Roy Moore for dinner or a conversation or something? 
can you guarantee me that that students wouldn't attack or or I mean, they would certainly protest, which is their right to do. I'm sure many would write op eds saying this is this is un, this is inconceivable that he has done this. There would be many saying the campus is no longer a safe place for women because this man is here. Uh, they would all be coming from the left. Uh, so um, so while I, I didn't strongly object to what he had to say in the op ed, um, I, I think there is there is a threat to free speech from some in the left. Uh, in very interesting ways, actually mirroring some of the language that the right used for that whole Ahmadinejad thing in the conception of safety. So it's very interesting, and I'm glad you brought it up. Um, but, uh, but uh, well, anyway, that's what I think about it. Yeah, it is. I mean, it is interesting. You know, there's <laughs> there's a lot of arguments out there saying that, like, the, you know, the, the left and right have, have traded places in terms of, like, um, you know, uh, how do you even say this word? Prurience? Is that the word? Like, they're prurient. Like, you know, they're concerned about contamination. And, you know, we need to keep the campus pure and safe. And, um, you know, whereas before it would be like the people on the right saying, like, Amagina is setting foot on, you know, the island of Manha- right. Manhattan where 9-11 <laughs> happened just five years before, like, is spoiling the sainted isle. So, yeah, there's, and there's been, there has been some kind of switch that I, even though I read your book, I still don't entirely understand how, how this happened. I mean, I think Trump is part of it, that Trump is such a, uh, you know, um, a figure of anti-purity, of contamination. Yes. That but it's not a switch on free speech because the, the right is still very bad on free speech. It's, uh, I, I do not want anyone to come away with the idea that, oh, yeah, now the conservatives are the defenders of, of free speech rights. I mean, it's, it's, more, it's actually nonpartisan organizations like the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education are the only ones doing, like, non-hypocritical work on this issue. Uh, where they defend everyone's free speech rights. And I think I do try, I do my best to defend everyone's free speech rights, regardless of whether I agree with them or not, regardless of whether they're right or left, in part because I am not right or left myself. Um, but, you know, many of the sort of conservative groups um, have, you know, I, I, I think it's, it's you know, if, wanting your professor on a watch list or, or recorded for having said something wrong in class which some conservative organizations do, like that is not, that is like very, very anti-free speech, like at its core. So you are at best a fair weather defender of free speech situationally, um, which might be worse than being not for free speech at all. <laughs> yeah. And I have a kind of a theory that like almost no one actually supports free speech. Like it's probably just the libertarians are the ones who actually support free speech. And there's speech. like five of us. So yeah. and whereas so most, most people right. want free speech for their side and not for the other side, which is kind of like, most people are, I mean, we can talk about this forever, so we won't, but we, most people are relentless authoritarians, um, and that's just the end of, that's the end of story. <laughs> okay, well, that's a good place. That's a positive note to end on. So, uh, Panic Attack is a book. Thank you for, um, uh, uh, staying so long in this super, super long episode. Um, so, um, good luck with the book. So people can follow you on Twitter. What is, is it just your name? Yep. At Robbie Suave. Yep. And they can follow me at, at RACW. And um, so thanks to all of our viewers and listeners who stuck with us uh, for the long haul. Uh, thank you, Robbie, and we'll see you again next time. Thank you. Before you go, a quick message from the suits of Blogging Heads TV. Blogging Heads will always be free for you to watch and listen to, and we don't even go the NPR route of guilting you into donating during Pledge Week. But we do have a small request. If you enjoy Blogging Heads programming, rate and review us on iTunes. 
The iTunes algorithm weighs positive reviews heavily, so taking a few minutes to rate and review us will help more people find out about our shows. Also, of course, we encourage you to subscribe to our Twitter and Facebook feeds. Thank you.